Hello, Michelle here. There's something I need you to know about. It's called Australian True Crime Plus. For just a couple of dollars a month, you can get extra episodes, including Ask Us Anythings with Emily and I, early access to our weekly episodes, shout outs and the complete back catalogue and all of it ad free. You can become an Australian True Crime Plus member by hitting the link in the show notes or on our Facebook page. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The producers of this podcast recognize the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. Nobody had a right, people I didn't even know, made decisions about where my life was going to go and forced me to to live a life that I shouldn't have to live. I shouldn't have to be... um, the mental health scars, you know, like of what they inflicted on me. I should have been, you know, happily married and probably had a few more children. They robbed me of my only son. And the last words on my lips when I probably go into heaven, if I go there, will be they stole my son. They stole my son and they didn't give him back. Australia in the mid-20th century has a dark history of forced adoption. Women who did not fit the moral expectations of the time, usually those who were young and unmarried, had their children taken from them at birth, often with little to no information left behind for them to be reunited. Our guest today, Lily Arthur, is one story of many, and it is an absolutely heartbreaking one. It is also a story of determination and grit and the long fight Lily went through to seek justice for what happened to her and many others. We begin by Lily telling us about her childhood. I was born in London, on the east end of London. My father was an Irish Catholic and my mother was a Jew. So, you know, we had a pretty mixed up sort of um, background. And um, I came to Australia, 10 pound palm, and I was nine years old when I arrived in Townsville, actually, that was our first port of call where we set up, you know, living there. There were seven children, so we, we, we had very harsh conditions. 
We were in Australia for two years when my father left my mother and nine children here. Why did he do that? I thought you meant you had harsh conditions in London. Wouldn't it have been a great change? And what made him leave then? It was extreme because we came from living near my family. We were all there together in all these big Victorian flats that were built without a bathroom and the rest of it. And we came to Australia and we we ended up 10, 10 miles north of Townsville in the middle of the bush. So we went from, you know, having electricity, TV and everything else like that to having uh, like a a shed um, in the middle of nowhere next to a river that flooded the first couple of nights we were out there and and mosquitoes and... As hot as hell. Tropical ulcers and and no electricity, no water. We used to have to drag it up from the river and... No family. No family. No family. And when my father left, we were even sort of like more in a uh, a bit of a pickle because, you know, there was no money. So where did he go? Did he go home to England? He went back to England. Did he? And he left all of you here? Yes. But he was going to try and work, uh, try and work and bring us all home. But there was, (laughs) well, there was 10 people to bring home. So it was going to be Mission Impossible anyway. Did he stay in touch? There might have been a few letters, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. There was very little uh, contact uh, from him after he went back. Oh. He, he did try coming back five years later, you know, like and tried to kill my stepfather that my mother was living with at the time. No. She was going to, she was divorcing him and uh, he'd been gone for five years, but he only had to come back one night and s- spend a night under the roof and that, you know, more or less abolished the five years separation, whatever, so... Anyway, he tried to kill my stepfather and they, he landed himself in jail. But I have to take into consideration the fact that he spent nine years in the war. You know, yes. went through the whole duration of the war. He joined up in, at the age of 18 and then he went on to Palestine for another five years. Yeah. So I'd he was very damaged. You know, so, I mean, you don't understand these things so you get a lot older. That's such a good point, yes. That's where my story more or less started was when, um, you know, my mother had to move from where she was living and I was, I was, I suppose I was nearly 17, uh, about two or three months before my 17th birthday and I had um, a boyfriend that I was madly in love with. His name was Steve. He was a Ukrainian background and um, was only 20. And anyway, um, I didn't want to go to to Sydney with my parents. I was living in Brisbane at the time. I had a job and everything else like that. And I decided to stay there because I wanted to be with, you know, with Steve. And I ended up moving to a small room and then uh, there was problems there. Some old man was looking at me, you know, through the keyhole. And Steve had a, um, like a half house in an old Queenslander. So I moved in with him. He was in a band and he was practising in the kitchen one night and just on, you know, a couple of acoustic guitars and I was in bed asleep. And the next minute I was being woken up and when I looked up there was two policemen standing next to the bed. Anyway, they they took me out into the kitchen and they were questioning me. And it was a month, it was a month off my 17th birthday. And when they found out that I was pregnant, they said, well, we have to take you in. So they took me uh, to the watch house and I was locked up in a cell there all night. And the next morning I appeared in the children's court and um, they they committed me uh, to Holy Cross until they could find my parents. Holy Cross was like a, a girls' reform school. Well, actually it was it started off as a Magdalen laundry. I don't know if you've heard of those in, in, in Ireland. 
it was a home for girls, erring girls or whatever, you know, they changed their uh, philosophy, um, you know, over the years to make it look a bit, I suppose, not so uh, harsh and whatever. It was a place where they took girls in under care and control. We just didn't do the laundry. We did, all, you know, cleaning and everything else like that. And But anyway, um, I was there locked up in the dormitory until the, they, they went to look for my parents, which they couldn't find because um, I wasn't exactly sure of their, where they were. They were in a caravan park in Sydney anyway. Who dubbed you in? Why did the police even know that you existed? It's a question. I think it was somebody that I worked with because when they found out I was pregnant, I was only six weeks pregnant, they fired me. And anyway, um, you know, I mean, the next minute, you know, all this happens. And by the time they arrested me, I'd been working for three years. So it wasn't like I was, you know, on the street or anything. But they charged me with being exposed to moral danger. They charged you with being exposed to what? Moral danger. How can you, that's just extraordinary, isn't it? To charge a child with being exposed to moral danger. How is that an offence that you've, even if we believe it's happened, or how is it an offence that you were exposed to moral danger? Isn't that unbelievable? Well, it's unbelievable given that at the time I didn't know that I was over the age of consent. I found that out later, you know, when I started studying and and my my boyfriend, Steve, I mean, he'd been to Sydney while, you know, this was happening and got our parents' permission to get married. Anyway, I'd signed the forms. They, 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 he brought them to the home and I signed the forms there in front of the nun. Anyway, I'm there waiting, you know, like for the marriage to happen and it just didn't happen and I didn't know what was happening Uh and then I found him 20-odd years later and he told me that when he went back to pick up the forms that the nun wouldn't give them to him. So, in effect, they, they had um, they'd interfered in the contract that we had made to get married, you know, with parental cons- consent. And your parents had consented. Yeah. But anyway, um, I didn't know what was happening. I'd, I'd turned 17 by then. I was 17 and I was the oldest one there and the only pregnant state ward at the time. What were the conditions like there at the uh, at the convent or the home or whatever it was called? Well, it was pretty primitive. And if you see a photo of the, the actual building, it's very morbid looking, you know, like it's very, it was built in the 1890s, so it wasn't exactly um, nice and welcoming or, inc- you know, that. but they had the laundry attached to the side of it. And soon as they uh, committed me uh, indefinitely, I came back from the court and what they did, they, the nun gave me a white shift. All the girls were dressed in a white shift and a pair of thongs. And then, you know, they named me Leanne. I wasn't allowed to be called Lily anymore. And then, you know, like I was sent to work in the laundry. Now, we worked from uh, in the laundry from, um, I suppose it would be about 7 or 8 o'clock in the morning till about 4 or 5 o'clock at night, five days a week. And on the weekend we had to, um, you know, do a bit of cleaning on the Saturday and on the Sunday we just sat around looking at one another. You would have gone to mass at some stage, surely? About four or five times a week. <laughs> yeah. You know, like we were dragged out of bed at 5 o'clock in the morning, you know, and, and you know, this it was... Yeah. It was freezing, you know, like and and sitting there in mass, shivering and everything. And, 
you know, not a very pleasant time. And all the girls had to go regardless of what religion they were. Mm. But the thing, you know, I, I didn't know what was happening because I had the only contact that I had with the outside world was one letter a week. On a Sunday we had to sit there and write one letter. Anyway, uh, after we wrote the letter we we had to, you know, not seal up the envelope and the nuns would read the letter and if they didn't like it, it would go in the garbage bin. So, you know, you couldn't tell your mother or whatever what is actually going on inside of the home because they were censoring our mail. Anyway, we weren't allowed out of the home, you know, uh, the only time and I, I got out of the home was going to hospital visits once a month with a departmental worker. And they used to have a, a an orange shift at the back of the nun's office that I'd put on, you know, when I was going and then take it off when I was coming back. And I went to the um, to the hospital for my checkups and that. But at no time, at no time were they saying what was going to happen to me when I had the baby. Did you ask? Did you suspect anything? What did you think was going to happen? I mean, I was I was over 17. By the time I had him, I was nearly 18, you know, 17 and a half. So I thought that because another girl had came in, she had a, she was pregnant and um, they set her up in a, a, she was only there for a couple of weeks till they set her up in a, um, a flat and all that and, and uh, helped her, and I thought, well, this is probably what they're going to do with me because when I have the baby, there's no reason to keep me, is there? Leading up to the uh, to me giving birth, I mean, I didn't know what was going on. I hadn't heard from Steve. They never let, let me see him. I had all my visitors, you know, like a couple of women from the place where I worked, and my sister was allowed to see me after I'd been in there a few months Anyway, I looked at the visitors list that I got from um, my records and it records me not having any visitors for nearly four months before and after the birth of the baby. I couldn't understand why no one was coming to see me, you know, so I was completely cut off from the outside world. When I went into labour, I was in labour for 16 hours with him. When I finally gave birth to him, they ripped me inside and out delivered me in a way, you know, like um, that I couldn't see the baby. I was in a sideways running position. That was how they delivered him and whisked him away. Obviously, they drugged me after they finished sewing me up, repairing their damage. You've been sedated. And I think most of us know that when you're coming out of any kind of sedation like that, you know, you're so groggy and you're trying to sort of climb out of it, aren't you? You're trying to climb out of it. So it must be really difficult to remember those first hours and days. But especially in your situation, you know, you baby's around here somewhere. Were you in a ward with other women? I was, and they called it the heartbreak ward. Oh, God. Yeah, what? that was the name for it. And they put it, they put all the unmarried mothers in that ward. That was in the Royal uh, Women's Hospital in Brisbane. Jesus. You must have been asking them. You must have been crying out for someone to bring I just the baby. Remember spending most of my time hiding under the blankets. And I did eventually get word to Steve. And he came up and uh, saw me twice while I was in there. You know, we had a talk. I, I don't remember much about the conversation because I was, all I knew was that he was there. We're standing there looking at the nursery window trying to find the baby, but I didn't know till years later in my court case the nurses in the hospital said that they hid the babies for adoption in the hospital and changed their names so people couldn't find them. I feel like this is 
you know, you're both so disempowered because we'll have listeners thinking, oh, I would have screamed and bashed on it on the glass and I would have grabbed someone by the neck and I would have demanded. But you kids were so disempowered that you're just standing there at the glass, so obedient, just trying to see if you can see your baby. I mean, it's that's how beaten down you both were. Well, we had absolutely no power. No. And the, the thing was, um, you know, eight days after I gave birth to him, this woman appeared from um, the department. Mm. And anyway, um, she gave me the spiel, uh, you know, like, we want, you know, you've got to sign these uh, forms to adopt your baby out. And I didn't want to. And, and she said, you know, we can keep you in the home till you turn 18 which was, um, you know, about six months later. Anyway, she said, what, we, what we'll what we do is we'll keep him in foster care and you have to prove that you're a fit mother. And that could take anything up to four to five years. And if, you you know, you try getting your son back there, he won't know you or hate you because, you know, you've taken him from a loving home. And she used the fact that she knew that Steve had been to see me and she said that you weren't allowed to do that. You know, we could send you to Kerala House for doing that. What's Kerala House? Kerala House was a place that um, if girls played up in Holy Cross, they would send them out to Kerala House. And it was a, a place uh, where they gave young girls the prison-like experience that they would um, get if they followed their lifestyle, that they would end up in a prison. So the idea was to give them that experience mm-hmm. and lock them up in um you know, solitary confinement for months on end until that girl was broken. The psychological warfare they're waging against you, against all you girls, is just extraordinary, isn't it? Well, there was a few girls that went to Kerala House while I was in there. You know, they tried running away. Mm. And, I mean, you had to climb over these, you know, 12 or maybe even higher fences with barbed wire up the top to get out of the place. I couldn't do it, not in my condition. She got my consent off me and that afternoon after uh, I, she got my consent, she said to me, do you want to see the baby? No. And I said, yeah, of course I want to see the baby. You, you haven't seen him yet. You, this is the first opportunity you've had. Yeah, eight days later. Anyway, they gave me a card to hold up at the window with his name on, you know, Baby McDonald. Anyway, um, they brought a baby over and... Um, he was lying on his side, so I could only see half half of his face. And, you know, I had a bunny rug around him, you know, wrapped up around his face, so you couldn't see much anyway. Anyway, as soon as they uh, I saw the baby, they packed me up and sent me back to the home. And that afternoon, after I was still under the influence of these this medication and uh, sitting in the laundry folding pillowcases that afternoon. I'm sure it was no coincidence that they kept you sedated for a while after that. Well, uh, when it wore off, you know, like um, she told me that I had 30 days, you know, to change my mind, but it's a bit hard to change your mind when you're locked up without any contact with the outside world. Anyway, uh, the 30 days came and went and they came up to me um, about five or six weeks after and um, said to me, oh, you're going home. And a week later they put me on a plane and flew me down to Sydney. To your parents. So the thing was 
I didn't know what had happened to me. I thought I was living in a in a in a nightmare. You know, like you sort of like split off, and then all of a sudden you're outside in the outside world. I was extremely fearful. You know, like of being out in all that open space. I was constantly getting lost. You know, trying to find my way. You know, around Sydney. I didn't know where I was. I couldn't contact Steve. I didn't know how to contact him anymore. Twelve months to the day that they put me out of the home end up marrying uh, my first husband. But um, it was like um, it was living in a nightmare for many, many years. I had this um, constant like a a roll of uh, film with the same images flashing around in the back of my mind, you know, like every waking moment of trying to put together this um you know, scenario that had happened to me. I was I was living in a very um, abusive marriage. He couldn't have children. I found out after four years of marriage that he was infertile. So I ran away and lived up in Queensland for six months. I left the marriage and then I fell pregnant to a young man. And when I contacted my husband again, I wanted to get a divorce. Anyway, uh, he begged me to come back, you know, and I thought, well, at least I would have somebody to uh, look after the baby and and whatever. I didn't know. I went back to Sydney then. How frightening was it to be pregnant again? I mean, how did you feel about all of that? It was terrifying. It was terrifying because I didn't know, um, you know, what was going to happen. No. And I did sign into Crown Street Women's Hospital, you know, like um, uh, for the birth. And then I found out years later that they had my daughter earmarked for adoption. So I nearly lost her. And I suppose in one sense, you know, going back with my first husband, at least I saved her from being taken because I, I was a married woman at the time when they put it, her down for uh, to be taken for adoption. Yeah, absolutely. Last time you were pregnant, your life was torn apart. I can't imagine the trauma of finding out you were pregnant to a young man again to whom you were not married back in Queensland. I can't imagine the trauma of that. So, of course, you went back to this abusive man. At least you're married to him and it must have felt as though he offered some kind of protection from that happening again. But then what was life like when you went back to him with your baby? Pretty horrible. And he must have known that he had that over you as well. Oh, of course he did. I was reminded of of it every day. I suffered a mental breakdown and I just eventually left the, um, the marriage you know, like I, I didn't have nothing to lose, so I just packed up my car and my daughter was 19 at the time and I just packed up my car and I went up to Queensland and I spent two years up here thinking that I could, um, you know, find my son and um, it didn't happen. I didn't understand what had happened to me because they, well, I've written numbers of letters to the department asking for my records, never had one piece of paper. Did you ever have counselling? Did you ever tell anyone? Did you disclose to anyone during that time what had happened to you as a teenager? I did. And um, I went to a Salvation Army marriage counsellor and, you know, told this was after um, I I ran away and came back. Uh, She's told me not to bother coming anymore, that she'd speak to him, you know, after I told her about the adoption stuff and whatever. So she didn't offer you counselling about that at all? No. And then I went to see another counsellor because I was having trouble with it. But when I started looking into it, after I left my first husband and divorced him, I remarried. 
And uh, my husband said to me, well, you better get some sort of education, you know. So I did a course on welfare and that's when I um, started looking into what had happened to me. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. After separating from her abusive partner... Lily Arthur was now back in Queensland with a new husband, determined to find her son and seek justice for the years of abuse she suffered as a ward of the state. When I started studying, uh, I, I came across an adoption sort of like activist support group. Right. And that's when, um, you know, from the very first phone call, they, she, Diane Welfare, she ran the organisation, asked me, was I given um, you know, my legal rights? And I thought, what was, what was my legal rights? So she said yeah. you were to be offered um, financial assistance to keep the baby. You were uh, to be offered fi- uh, foster care until you were in a position to take care of the baby. And oh. and these were the things that they had to do before they took an adoption consent. You were to yeah. be warned about the lifelong future regret if you signed an adoption. What horrified me worse was that I thought that I was the only one that this happened to. And then I find out it happened to about 150,000 young women in this country. 150,000? 150,000 and and 50,000 in Queensland. You know, women like me. And I'm carrying this burden thinking that there was something grotesque about me. Lily, that's heartbreaking that you thought it was something about you that... Well, the, when I took them to court, I took the um, uh, the state of I, I was studying welfare, right, and then I went on to study law, mm. and then that was triggering me all the time, you know, like when I was doing criminal law and the rest of it, and and it started, you know, flashing to me about all the crimes that they had committed against me. What made you decide to study law at that age? And like after I did the welfare course, I thought I've got to take this further, you know, like. Because I, I wanted to sue the state and, and the nuns. Yeah. So I, ha- I needed to get as much, um, you know, education yeah. as I could so I could understand a lot of stuff. Anger. Do you think it was anger from all those years, from 16 years of age? Do you think it was? Oh, there was, there was anger there, all right. Yeah. There was well and truly anger. Good. And, and, when, I, and when I thought about it, you know, like it, it, you think about all the years that these people had been punishing you and, and yeah. judging you and everything else like that. 
and then, you know, and committing all those crimes against you mm. and then, you know, you taking the blame yep. for what they did to you, mm. you know, because you're the sort of woman that gave away her own child that ended up in this mess Yeah. when, you know, and you think about it and, you know, I was a, and this is the reason why I took them to court, I was a ward of the state. They made me a ward of the state and the state was my guardian mm. and they subjected me to imprisonment, to slavery, for forced to work without wages, pay, like, you know, any other person. Eight hours a day in that laundry it had me, you know, cut off from the world so I couldn't get an advocate to advocate on my behalf. They stole my child at birth handed him over to strangers, then kicked me out of that home, you know, without uh, without one dollar in my pocket, you know, for the, for the 10 months that they had me incarcerated. And when you think that, you know, it wasn't even 18 when I came out of that place, they determined my life. Absolutely. They determined where I was to go, how I was to be, you know, uh, seen to the rest of the world, given a, a sentence that lasted me for life for the mere fact that I fell in love with somebody and had his child. And there was a lot of issues here. When I took the court case, they threw it out. Still still making it difficult for you in the 1990s, still making it hard for you. 2004, I had my court case. Unbelievable. And the, the judge wrote a 17-page um, judgment that practically rewrote my life, my story, and then dismissed it. Never took into consideration that at the at what happened to me, I was under the total care of the state. Mm. Everything that they did to me, you know, was um, was unlawful. And, and at the end of the day, caused me great mental harm and still does when you oh, think about it. I do think about it. It's all I'm thinking about, Lily. I can't believe you survived. So you're right. The state was your guardian and your judge. And honestly, how they weren't your executioner, I don't know. How you've survived, I don't know. So you, you, started, you decided to study law, which astounds me. Is that when you sort of really started to become aware of of the legislation as it stood at that time and when you started to really look for your son? Well, I'd, I'd already found him. <gasps> Shut up! Okay. I, I only found out that um, when they sent me my son's non-identifying information, they never gave me a name or anything else like that where he lived, absolutely nothing. No. Anyway, um, a friend of mine told me after eight years because I had the breakdown and when I started joining with Origins that... Um, Origin. SPSA, supporting people separated by adoption. I was entitled to his first name. Anyway, I found out that his first name was Tim. Anyway, my husband and my daughter, we went through the electoral rolls down in New South Wales. We looked at about two and a half million names until we found about 40-odd Tims and Timothys. Anyway, we, we came up to Queensland with that information and went through the state because um, the records up here at the archives said that, you know, uh, when they came on the roll and that, so we had an idea we could knock some of them off, you know. And my friend Jeanette, who told me about the uh, getting the name, she was looking for her son, David. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, uh, what happened was she thought that there was all the school admission books in the archive and it turned out there was only six. 
So she was doing the microfiche and I was doing the um, I was doing the electoral rolls. Anyway, she came out and she said, oh, I've got a, uh, a boy here whose name is uh, Timothy and he was born on the same day as your son. I said, but the, uh, the worker told me his name was Tim. She said, yeah, but he's born on the same day. So anyway, we took his uh, details and then she came out about 10 minutes later and she said, oh, there's a boy here named Tim and he was born 10 days later. And I said, well, you know, it's 10 days later, you know. She said, but they changed their date of birth. She said they changed their name and they changed their date of birth. So anyway, I said, okay, well, we'll take his details. So we rang up the first Timothy and found out that he was working in a coal mine in Collinsville. We tracked him down through some of the relatives, you know, like in the phone book. Mm. Anyway, um, she, she gave me his phone number and I rang him up later that night. I said, oh, well, I'm looking for my son who I lost for adoption. Mm. And uh, she, he said to me, he said, oh, my little mate across the road, because these boys, these two boys lived across the road from one another. The Tim and the Timothy? Yeah. No way. Anyway, so my little mate across the road, um, he was adopted and he was born on the same day as me. Oh. But it said on the record he was born on the 10th of September. He said, no, no, I'm sure he had the same birthday as me. Okay, born on the same day, was adopted from the same hospital as, you know, this boy. They were both born at the women's hospital. That that day I, uh, my mother and I went down to see this politician in Kabulcha and um, I was going to look at the electoral roll to find out where this Tim lived mm. later after we went and saw this because I was looking to uh, get a, a, a parliamentary inquiry in Queensland into forced adoption. There was one going on in New South Wales at the time. Mm. So anyway, we're sitting there talking to this politician. We must have been there for about an hour and a half. And he says, oh, he said, I remember this young bloke. Oh, I think his name was David, he said. But he was really angry at the time, you know, uh, when these laws were coming in and they formed this privacy group that stopped uh, you know, people from oh. contacting or getting information about their adopted children. So anyway, my ears pricked up and I thought, well, David, that's the name of Jeanette's son. We, she was looking for a boy named David. That's all she had and all I had was Tim. Anyway, a few months previously, I'd sent her a lot of information about, you know, the, when the laws changed and there was a meeting notice in the Courier Mail for adoptive parents, you know, about the privacy laws and they were to call this fellow named David. So I went home, got these two journals that um, I'd made for my son and then went around to where I found him, not far from where my mother was in Kabulcha. Anyway, I turned up at the door with the journals and his wife was home and I just said, I'm looking for my son who was adopted. And she just eyes wide, oh, how did you find us? I said, with extreme difficulty. Yeah. I give him these journals. If not, I'll come round tomorrow and pick him up. Anyway, we waited all night. And the next morning the phone rang and it was him. My mother answered and then she passed it over to me and he said, I think you can stop looking. I think I'm your son. Oh, my God. I, I met him a couple of hours later. By the time I got home, Jeanette had rang and said that, yes, that boy that was in the article uh, in the Courier-Mail was her son. No. We found each other's son with a first name only <laughs> oh. on the same day, you God. know, that I met my son. So yeah. that, that was the story behind. But, um, you know, my relationship with him was, um, uh, i got to say it, it wasn't 
real close. You know, we did have contact with one another, but well, we still maintain contact with each other. This is the thing. They really are fairy tale reunions, are they? And and we shouldn't hope for that really and we shouldn't put pressure on that. I mean, it's an extraordinarily difficult thing. He had a lot to deal with. Yeah. And finding out the truth of, yeah. um, you know, uh, uh, and everybody knew he was adopted. You know, he didn't find out till he was 23. You know, everyone in the street knew who's adopted, but oh. he had a lot to deal with, you know, when I popped up and started telling him all, you know, the story about what they did to us. Yeah. But, you know, that was another thing why I was determined to get them into court. It took me seven years to get them into court. You know, in the meantime, I'd, I'd been, I suppose, trying to get some records because I never had one slip of paper to actually prove what they did to me. So I started getting a few different things, you know, coming to me and, you know, there's a lot of questions about what was going on at the time, you know, and it became abundantly clear that, um, you know, this was a uh, like a routine that they did, you know, to unmarried mothers in Queensland where they took the babies at birth without the mother's consent mm. and, you know, um, eventually adopted them out anyway. I took them to court and they dismissed my claim saying that it happened too long ago. But the thing was is that they hid, they hid every scrap of evidence that I could use to bring a court case earlier under their um, the privacy laws. Yes, absolutely, yep. I was, I was um, told that, you know, the statute of limitations, I should have brought a case earlier when they knew damn well it was impossible to take any legal action against the state when they hid, you know, all yeah. your evidence that you needed under legislation till 1990. That's right. My court case was a precedent court case. Yeah. It's the judgment is still up on the is on the Queensland law site, mm-hmm. you know. So uh, 18 years after that judgment, you know, and and. And the judgment was absolutely scathing. It nearly killed me. And I thought to myself, you know, how do I respond to this? You know, how do I respond to this judgment where the court allowed the state to abuse its wards and get away with it? And the crimes that had been committed against me had not been resolved. My son is still stolen. He's, st- he's still stolen by the state of Queensland and they know it because by then I'd become the head of an organisation, Origins, that was, you know, doing an awful lot of um, advocacy and, and activism because mm. we got the New South Wales Parliamentary Inquiry and uh, handed down their report in the year 2000 that found adoption practices in New South Wales were unlawful. Mm. Anyway, so it was the long charged then, I suppose, in one sense, to get a Senate inquiry into forced adoption. Anyway, um, after a long, hard slog, you know, like um, with the Forgotten Australians, the children institutions, they gave them a national apology. And then um, uh, we started jumping up and down around the country and uh, in the long run, uh, got a Senate inquiry into forced adoption practices. You did during the Gillard government, right? That's right. And yeah. um they wanted us to to address the issue of what was the Commonwealth's responsibility in respect to forced adoption policies mm. and practices. Well, the thing was as though that was a huge ask, how do we prove that they are involved? Well, you go back to your research, don't you? Mm. Where back in the 1950s, the Commonwealth was meeting with all the states right through to the, I don't know, maybe up to the 70s 
on uniform adoption legislations and they had meetings every year with uh, each director across Australia. So they had these meetings. So we got the minutes of their meetings from the 1960s, right, leading up to the 65 Adoption Act, and that's where we were able to prove that um, the Commonwealth had knowledge, should have known, could have known, probably did know about the adoption practices that were going on by the states. Mm. And that's what we accuse them of. We accuse the Commonwealth of overseeing the breaches of the common law by the states of Australia because they were there and they were well aware about, you know, um, the breaches of law and that's where, you know, in the end they had to they had to give a national apology. It feels like so. it was so widespread. It feels like a racket to me. Why was this? Ha- you know what I mean? Like why was this happening? Who was benefiting from this? A lot of people gained from it. The, the, um, the, the governments gained from it because they didn't have to pay out um, uh, an already existing and people are under the misapprehension that there was no financial support available when there was. And this was a myth that was created to, you know, uh, I suppose, give a, a sanitary view of their baby uh, taking yeah. racket. Anyway, um, the thing was the governments benefited because they didn't have to dip into the public purse for these, uh, you know, immoral women or young yeah. women. Yeah. And uh, adoptive parents benefited because they got the child that they so desperately needed to make a family. Mm -hmm. So they were all happy. So you got your moral brigade, they're benefiting. You know, it's still a very moral They say that the child is benefiting, you know, because they got a mother and father, you know. I've heard so many cases of, you know, adoptees being abused, it's not funny. May I ask um, what sort of financial benefits were sent the way of the the homes of the nuns and the, the the Catholic orders who precipitated the the adoptions. The, the the nuns were being paid by the state to take care of us. I thought that might be the case. Yep, they were. And yeah. then, of course, they stole to order. But it's... you know, if you look at their reports, you know, to Parliament, they had so many applications and they filled nearly every one of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and. Yeah. That's not coincidental. No. You know, they you know, if you get a fourteen hundred applications for children a year for adoption and you fill fourteen hundred a year after year, yeah. there's gotta be something wrong there somewhere. They were harvesting them. Yeah, absolutely. Well is this it? If they come and arrest you in your bedroom when there's nothing wrong but with this you. But this is the this is the worst part, right? Mm-hmm. We were children that were put into these positions. Well, I was wasn't I was an emancipated minor, right? Yeah. I was working, I'd been working for three years, put into this place where I was forced to work without pay by my guardian, the state. Now, when you think about it, you don't imprison your children and force them to work, and if they don't work for the church, then you hive them off to psychiatric institutions where they get incarcerated And, in, and, and given drugs every day to make them, you know, submissive. Mm. Now, that was what the state was doing to um, young girls like and young boys, whatever, mm. like myself. You cannot apologise for an unlawful act, you know. It's like any other um, thing, you know. You can't apologise for murder you can, and get away with it. You can't yeah. apologise for kidnapping and get away with it. There has to be some sort of restitution like any other victim of crime, and that's what I was. You don't go uh, into a public hospital to have a baby 
and then, you know, find yourself tied up, drugged and everything else like that and losing that child and having it hidden in the uh, the confines of the hospital with an alias name and say uh, in a letter from the health minister that that was their usual practice, and think that, you, uh, that you're going to get away with not dealing with this issue forever, it's not going to happen. I think it's going to be interesting for our younger listeners for whom adoption's not really um, a big thing in their generation. I think in my generation, I was born in the 70s, so a lot of my friends were adopted and, and that's probably that's roughly around the time your son was born, isn't it? You- yeah, one in 13 children in Australia were adopted. And this is the, the thing about, you know, like, it wasn't done in ignorance. No. Well and truly aware about the, the what they were going to cause, you know, to these kids when they took them off their mothers. Mm. And you, you can't forgive that, you know. If they saw, if, if they did it in ignorance, you'd sort of think, oh, well, you know. Yeah. They didn't do it in ignorance. They were well and truly, you know, versed on um, the effects of it. Mm. So that's why they, they can't be fobbed off or forgiven, whatever. And they know it today. They know it from the uh, the past of the damage that has been done to. I don't know how many adoptees I know that have killed themselves. I was wondering about the stats, and also about the um the mothers. I was going to ask you if, uh, not, and I don't need stats necessarily. Anecdotally, I was wondering. Well, they reckon the highest suicide rate of um of women were in the peak adoption years. Yeah, there you go. And I'm not talking, you know, most of the women that I've I've met over the years are now passed on. Mm. And if you don't pass away by, um, you know, actively killing yourself, you pass away through that slow decline of not looking after yourself. I was thinking that alcoholism would probably be fairly significant, wouldn't it? Things like that. The whole the whole gamut. Yeah. Of you know, like an and an estimated fifty percent of women never had another child. Oh my goodness, really? Put that on top of everything else like that, you know, it's just devastating. That these things could have happened, you know, like in a modern, uh, you know, day and age where women were supposed to be, you know, treated with some sort of equality or whatever. This is it. You watch, you watch your newsreel and it'll tell you that, oh, look at look at her now, women getting jobs and, uh, you know, look at the fashion and, oh, it's wonderful in Australia. This is why I'm saying it's really important that we understand what was really happening to young women that recently. We were going through the women's liberation era. That's it. When all of it's what's in its prime, you know, Mm. while women were out there throwing away their bras, you know, having uh, free love and whatever, you know, that was, you know, emancipation, whatever. That's and in the, in the in the hallways and labour wards of the hospital, they were having their children stolen off them. And you were minding your own business. You were employed. You were in a stable relationship, in a home. Hey, Lily, I've got to ask, whatever happened to Steve, your first love and Tim's biological father? He, he got married eventually and had four children. He's drifting around, you know, um, he hasn't changed in lots of ways, you know. It's still all unfinished business, isn't it? Isn't it? So that's really interesting. So he, do you think he's been sort of unable to get over it too? Well, he will tell me no. I mean, he stood by me through the court case, through all the, um, you know, the articles that we've done and everything else like that. And um, he tries really hard, you know, and it's not easy when um, a young man who's coming into manhood, I suppose, becomes 
disentitled and whatever. And in in one sense, you know, oh. he had his family taken off him. We had plans and everything. And and then, you know, when you do that to somebody when they're young, it's very hard for them to, I suppose, in one sense, to get on and, and deal with the world. Oh, it's so completely emasculating. And he's a young man who is new to Australia. And one of the first things that's happened to him is this, is that Australia has said, no, we're not going to let you have a baby. We're not going to let you have, you're not good enough to have this baby, have your family, we're going to take it away from you. Well, if you read what the judge says about him in the judgment, Mm. you know, it's, you're looking at a a 19-year-old man trying to find his way in the world, you know, and and be responsible and have a family. Mm. And then, you know, years later have somebody, you know, make a judgment on you. Um, It really is, it's quite bitter to read the words of somebody who did not even take into consideration that the person that he was making judgments on was actually a prisoner of the state. People have read my judgment and and spoken about it in various reports and that and said if it had have happened in today's climate, the outcome probably would have been different in light of a Senate inquiry and 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 national apologies and the rest of it. But I was forced as a person to go down that avenue to right a very damaging wrong, in my opinion, you know, as a seeker of justice. And at the end of the day, um, you know, just being here talking with you, you know, is my sense of judgment. Every yeah. time I speak up and it goes out there, I feel as if um, it's my compensation in one way for um, not getting the same sort of treatment as any other victim of crime. And the thing at the end of the day was it was uh, the reason why I wrote the book was firstly to address the judgment in my court case. It took me nearly 20 years to get over that Mm. and to, you know, give a bit of a, uh, I suppose in one sense, a bit of a historical view on um, how the uh, Senate inquiry happened and and how that national apology and uh, I was looking back of what has actually eventuated from that national apology. Mm. And, okay, it was given a certain amount of, uh, you know, response. And I'm thinking I don't feel any different now to what I felt 20 years or more ago. You know, um, nothing is resolved. My son is still stolen. He, I am still under the threat. Uh, from the state government that if he decides that he doesn't want any more contact, um, that they can put a contact um, objection against me and uh, uh, jail me for two years if I breach it. Um, So you still got that influence of the state hanging over your head, still maintaining control. And the thing at the end of the day is I'm no different to any other victim of crime that has suffered, and I mean Every way that a person can suffer emotionally, physically, I'm still bearing the the damage that they nearly broke my back during delivery, mm. living with that pain, still living with the mental health damage of um, what they've done. Uh, I lost my son. He belongs to some stranger's family tree. Mm-hmm. I've lost every future grandchild to strangers that I don't even know. And, you know, that's the most appalling part of it. That, you know, my own flesh and blood, and I'm doing my family history at the moment, which means a lot to me, 
My own flesh and blood has been separated from me and tacked onto a, fa- a complete stranger's family tree. Mm. And he, they, his children will carry the name of strangers onto infinity until it wears out, whatever. Mm. And that's one of the highest insults that I can imagine to me as, as, a, as a person who was used to give somebody else a family. And the thing at the end of the day is I'm no different to any other victim of crime. I deserve justice like every other woman like myself. We live and we'll die with the the effects of what they've done to us. And why can't a person get outraged about that, you know, without being labelled as an embittered angry woman like it was in my court case? And I think to myself, I had every right to get angry about it because nobody had a right, people I didn't even know, made decisions about where my life was going to go and forced me to to live a life that I shouldn't have to live. I shouldn't have to bear um, the mental health scars, you know, like of what they inflicted on me. I shouldn't have, I should have been, you know, happily married and probably had a few more children. You know, I, I only had the one daughter, that's all. They robbed me of my only son. And the last words on my lips when I probably go into heaven, if I go there, will be they stole my son. They stole my son and they didn't give him back. Thanks to our guest, Lily Arthur. Lily's book, Dirty Laundry, The Crimes a Country Tried to Hide, is available now and we've got info in the show notes for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. And thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime, recorded at a Hub Australia media studio, hubaustralia.com. Find the workspace that's right for you. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. 
They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.